Let me explain what we're doing. We are in week two of a 10-week series, which we've called Doctrine, Passions, and Practices of Mercy Hill Church. And you can see all the topics inside your bulletin. There's two reasons we're doing this series. One reason is because we're moving towards membership in terms of having membership here at the church. And the main point of that is so that people can understand who we are, what we believe. We used the illustration a few weeks ago. If a football team recruited players from all different other teams and never shared with those players what their playbook said, they'd have trouble if they kept playing by their old, their own old team's playbooks. And so this is our way through this 10-week series of showing you our playbook. This is what our understanding of what the scriptures teach. This is what we believe Bible doctrine is and what passions and practices we are to pursue. So then you can say, is this the church I want to join, be a part of, commit to? So that's one reason we're doing this. But secondly, maybe you're like here visiting and you're thinking, I'm not sure about the whole membership thing. That's fine. Okay. In fact, if any of you say that, if you've been here for years and you're not so sure about it, that's fine. Okay. Because I'm trying to do this teaching in such a way that whether you're a like just starting to learn about Jesus, just starting to learn a few things, haven't really fully committed your life yet, but you're just learning. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if you've been a follower of Jesus for decades, I'm trying to craft this teaching so that wherever you are in the spectrum, you will be encouraged, strengthened, enlightened, helped, empowered, you know, maybe put some more of the pieces of the puzzle in place. So that's what we're trying to do here with this series. So let's pray. It's a tall order. And uh, God can do it, so let's ask him to come and do that. You know how much I need your help, Jesus. And thank you that you love to give help to needy people like me right now. And so would you come and help me? Lots to cover. Such amazing truth that I have the privilege of talking about. And give me wisdom into your word and your truth and give me Revelation, to feel more deeply the amazing truths that I get to talk about, about you today. And give us all open hearts to your word. Strengthen us. I pray that you would save people this morning, maybe people here who've never put their trust in Jesus Christ, that this morning they would see you, Jesus, in your glory and splendor and say, I want to trust you. Those who are struggling in the midst of trials right now, we're going to be talking about trials. Lord, would you meet them today? Strengthen them. Give them peace. Those who are fearful about possible trials, you'd meet them. And, and all of us, Lord, all the different needs, questions, issues that are here, you can deal with all of them by your power working. And so come and do that now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start off raising the question, what is the most painful experience, emotionally painful experience of, of people today. And Richard Weaver, found a quote from Richard Weaver, he for many years was professor of English literature at the University of Chicago. So he read all kinds of literature that was put out by authors in this country, observed the media, watched the culture of this country, all to try to get a sense of what's going on. And here's what he says is our most painful experience. He says, the most painful experience of modern consciousness, modern people, he says, is the loss of center. And what does that mean? The loss of center. What he means by that is the loss of something in our lives that would be so valuable 
so meaningful, so energizing, that it, it gives meaning and purpose and passion to every other part of your life. It's like, it's like the center, like the sun at the center and everything else in your life has its proper, harmonious, meaningful orbit around it. Something at the center of your life that's so rich and full and significant that you have passion and purpose for every part of your life. It organizes your life, energizes your life, impassions your life. That's what a center is. And so what's most painful, he says, for people today is that we have no center in our lives. Not for lack of trying. Right? We've put family into the center. Family's a really good thing. Doesn't work as the center. We put money into the center. Money's not bad. Doesn't work as the center. Just, if you haven't figured out that, just keep trying it a few more weeks, you'll know, okay? We've put sex at the center. Sex is a wonderful gift from God pursued in God's ways. It's not the center. We've put recreation at the center. Doesn't work. We put retirement at the center. As soon as I get there, it's all going to come together. <laughs> no. Okay. We've put ourselves at the center. Well, that doesn't last more than a couple seconds. It's like, <laughs> there's nothing there, you know. You were meant created to have something amazing at the center of your life. And the most painful experience of men and women today is knowing that and not having that. Now the good news I have for you today is that there is a center for your life. You were created for this center. And I want to tell you all about what this center is today. The center you were created to have, the infinitely valuable, profoundly purposeful, meaningful, energizing, passion-giving center of your life is knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what I want to talk about today. So here you've got six pages, and we've got lots of time. Glorious. Let's just dive in. By the way, we're not going to look up uh, all these verses, by any means, I put them in here, though, so you can look them up. We've got this all written out, so you can study on your own, you know, drill a little bit deeper. But let's dive in here with number one. Number one, doctrine. God is infinitely more important than anything else. God has always been without beginning. Let that just blow your mind. Go back as far as you want. Before creation, there's never a time when God was not. He's always been. And God created everything that exists out of nothing. All there was for eternity past was God. And then he said, let there be, and there was. Light, universe, creation, earth, Adam and Eve. Whatever exists, exists only at God's good pleasure. That's why you took that last breath. He said, here's another breath for you. Here's another breath for you. It's the only reason you're here. We exist at God's good pleasure, and everything that exists, exists for God's own purposes. You're not here for your own purposes. He created you for his purposes. Here's what they are. We were created to know God, depend on God, worship God, obey God, delight in God, glorify God. So God is infinitely more important than anything else. That is not an overstatement. He is infinitely more important 
than anything else. And a hundred years from now, assuming you're all going to be dead at that point, a hundred years from now, all that's going to matter, all that's going to be important to you is God and whether or not God in Christ was the passionate center of your life. Who is God? What do we mean by God? Number two, in God's word we read that God has always existed as a trinity. Three persons in complete unity of will and purpose. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now what you have to understand is that each person of the trinity is fully God and equally God. Crucial to understand that. But, and here's, here's one of many mysteries in the Bible, things that my little pea-sized brain can't wrap itself around. Here's a mystery. At the same time, there is only one God. God is one in essence and nature. Now let me just go through the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I want you to see that each person of the Trinity is fully and equally God. God the Father is fully God. Nobody debates that. If anybody believes in God, then they know God is God. Okay, it kind of sounds obvious. But here's a verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. There's the center. You exist for him. He is the center. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, that is, eternity past, was the Word. Now you can open up your Bibles this afternoon and go to verse 14 in John chapter 1, and you'll see that John uses this phrase, the Word, to describe Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus was in eternity past, and the Word, Jesus, was with God. So going to eternity past, you have God the Father and Jesus the Son in the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, are wrong on this point. Gives me no pleasure to say that. They're wrong. And that is a massive error. A watershed issue. If we're wrong on Jesus' deity, that wrongness will trickle and color everything. God the Son is fully God. God the Spirit is also fully God. Look at Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to... God, the Holy Spirit, is equally, fully God, as is the Son, Jesus, as is the Father. Number three, it's not that God appears, some people have a wrong idea, it's not that God appears in three different forms at different times. Like sometimes he shows up as Father, other times stops being Father, shows up as Son, other times stops showing up as Son and shows up as Spirit. It's that God is actually Three distinct persons all the time. At the same time as he's one in essence and nature. Now, here's a wonderful passage in Matthew 3 where you see Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father all together at one time. Look, look at what uh, Matthew writes for us here. 
And when Jesus was baptized, so here's Jesus, fully God, fully man, getting baptized by John the Baptist. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God. Here's the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So here's Jesus, and then here's the Holy Spirit coming, resting on him. Two persons of the Trinity, and verse 17 Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Who's saying those words? God the Father. So here in one picture we see Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father all at the same time, three persons of the Trinity. Flip the page over. Number four. Each member of the Trinity has a different function. The Father is the leader of Jesus and the Spirit without being more God-like than Jesus and the Spirit. He's the leader. So from before the, the foundation of the world, with Jesus and the Spirit, he planned creation, the sending of Jesus, pouring out of his wrath upon Jesus as payment for sin, the resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on those who trust Jesus, the saving of people from every nation and tongue and tribe, and the final destinies of heaven and hell, all of this planned by God. God's like the quarterback. He calls the play. Here's what, you know, red light, you know, you know, whatever the plays are, he calls it. And all of this is for the righteous and loving purpose of giving us the infinite joy. Got a lot of words here. Hang on. Giving us the infinite joy of increasingly beholding the glory of his perfections forever. Okay? Get just... That's a mouthful because it's a heartful. There's a lot going on there. But God calls that, plans that with Jesus and the Spirit. And then Jesus, second paragraph, like the Father, Jesus has always existed as fully God in order to die for our sins, like we have celebrated and worshipped him for this morning. In order to die for our sins and rise again, Jesus took on full human nature. So he is both fully God and fully man. Not 50% God and 50% man, totaling 100. No, he is 100% God and 100% man. How can that be? I don't know. Okay? But it is. Another mystery here. It's not the last one for this morning. But I mean, think about it. I mean, does, does, I mean we're talking about God here. And, and does God have to be able to... Like my little pea-sized brain has to understand everything about God. It's like our cat. Me requiring that our cat understands everything that I'm doing. It's, it's not going to happen. Third paragraph. Like the Father and the Son, the Spirit has always existed as fully God. And this is really important. I hear people talking about the Spirit, and then they use the word it. I don't think that's right. The Spirit is not an it. It's not just a force or a power. You could think that. The word Spirit kind of sounds a little, little spacey, but the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person like the Father and the Son. What I mean by that is he chooses and he acts and he wills. He is here now choosing and acting and willing. He's been here during our worship time, touching some of you, convicting of sin, encouraging your hearts, revealing Jesus to you. He's a person. He's here now at work. He gives to us the salvation purchased on the cross by Jesus. God the Father planned salvation. Jesus the Son purchased salvation. God the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. So he gives to us the salvation purchased on the cross by Jesus. 
changing our hearts, giving us faith, strengthening and comforting us with the presence of the Father and of the Son. The Holy Spirit, he kind of stays in the background. He wants to reveal the Father to you. He's really happy when you see the Father. He wants to reveal Jesus to you. Oh, he's really happy when, when, when you sense. He's, he's like in the background. He wants to glorify Jesus, glorify the Father. So you sense the Father and Jesus and their presence in your life. Strengthening and comforting us with the presence of the Father and of the Son and keeping us persevering in faith to the end. The reason that I'm trusting Jesus today is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life right this moment. That's why. So he gets the glory and I get the joy. Number five. Some people today broadening out the whole issue of like just an impersonal force for power. Some people think that God is just, you know, kind of like the power of love, you know, or something like that, right? Kind of a vague force. No, God is not an impersonal force or power. God is a profoundly personal being. One God, three persons who choose, will, speak, act, desire, rejoice, and love. First John 4, 8 says, God is love. And this has always been, from eternity past, passionately experienced within the Trinity as they rejoice and delight in their flawless perfections. Now, look at the last, I've got some verses listed there. You look up the first four on your own. Focus on 1 Timothy 1.11. This is a verse that you easily can miss the point. I'll read it. In accordance, just pull one phrase out of it. You can read the whole verse on your own, or the whole passage is powerful. But Paul says, in accordance with the gospel, what's the gospel about? It's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So the gospel is about the glory of the blessed God. Now the word blessed, there's two different Greek words translated blessed. One of them means speaking well of someone, where you bless someone. Right? That's, that's one of them. It's not this one. The other Greek word for blessed means joyful. Like when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not saying well spoken of are those that are poor in spirit. He means joy-filled will be those who are poor in spirit. So here Paul is telling us that the gospel is about the glory of the blessed, namely passionately joyful God. God is passionately joyful. I mean, what's your picture of God when you think about him? Kind of, kind of bothered? I kind of like, you know, losing a little bit? Kind of angry? Kind of cranky, maybe? I mean, honestly, what's your picture of God when you think about him? The most ultimate passion in God's heart is joy in the fellowship of the Trinity. Rejoicing in their perfections. The Father, stoked at the Son. Whoa! The Son, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, rejoicing in the Father. This burning, passionate joy in their perfections. That's who God is. So what does a God do who is burning with joy, passionate joy in his own perfections? What does he do? I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Hold that question. Let me just mention number six here. What about other gods? Allah, Buddha, Krishna, Baha'u'llah. What about other gods? There is no other God. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't say that with any pleasure. 
um, at least not in the sense of the grievous fact that many other people are deceived. I love lifting up God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit as the only God in that way. We've, ha- we've all worshipped other gods in some way, right? Whatever you put at the center is your God, whether it's Buddha or whether it's your career, right? Whatever we put at the center is our functional God, but there's no other God. They are either figments of our imagination, 1 Corinthians 8 says, or they're demons masquerading as gods, as 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20 says. So Allah is not God. And we love Muslims. And we, we, want, we long for Muslims to come to know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Buddha is not God. We should weep over the lostness of Buddhists and do all we can to help them come to see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, number seven. One of the fundamental traits of God or attributes of God is that he's holy. In Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In the book of Revelation 4, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, angels nonstop are singing praise to God. And what are they singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What does it mean for God to be holy? You can look up these verses. For God to be holy means that his perfections... His perfections set him infinitely apart from everything else that is. Infinitely apart. And I just, I just listed some here. I'm not going to drill into these much deeply, but you do. I've got at least one scripture for each one. But just think about the fact that God alone has always been. If you take all of reality and put over here those things that have always been, and then put over here the things that have not always been, there's only one Thing over here, God. Nothing else has always been. Everything else has had a beginning. God is profoundly separated from us in his perfection in that way. God alone has absolute power. He alone does whatever he himself wants. Psalm 13, you can see these verses on your own. God alone is creator. Everything else is created. God alone is sovereign over everything. Nothing happens outside his ultimate will. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things after the counsel of his will. Astonishing to ponder that and meditate on that. God alone has perfect and infinite wisdom. I mean, God can figure out to do things that we can never figure out how to do. Okay, that's just, just like a really kind of a stupid statement. Okay, I mean, like totally, okay, he has infinite, perfect wisdom. And then God alone is omniscient, knowing everything perfectly all the time. Don't page, turn your page over yet, but I mean, think about it. God knows all the past, all the present, all the future, perfectly, consciously, all the time in his mind. He, he's like, he's aware of everything all the time. There is a movement out today called open theism that says God doesn't know the future. It's a tragic mistake, and it's very destructive. You know, bad theology hurts people. And that is bad theology. Don't, don't fall for the open theist idea. It's wrong. Top of the next page. God, is, God alone is absolutely perfect with no flaws or defects. God alone is perfectly and all-powerfully good and loving. Mm. God alone acts in free unmerited mercy and grace, and God alone is full of infinite joy in himself. No other being is like that. And so therefore, 
God has infinite worth. On any scale of comparison, there's no other being who even shows up on the scale. Now let me just illustrate how this is important. Let's say that your son Johnny plays Little League Baseball. Now you like to go watch Johnny play Little League Baseball, but it's not because little Johnny's all that good. It's because he's your little Johnny. That's why you like to go watch him play. And, And that's why thousands of people don't come out to watch your little Johnny play Little League Baseball. Because um, he's, uh, you know, he's, they appreciate it, but he's not that good. I mean, he's just, he's just a little Johnny. But when it comes to A-Rod, okay, thousands of people go to watch A-Rod playing baseball. Why? Well, he is one of a kind. I mean, you watch him, and then it's like, crack, home run. Okay, right? Crack, home run. I mean, thousands of people will come to watch him. Why? It's not because of the hot dogs. Okay? It's because... There's something in us, we were wired to find our highest pleasures in beholding greatness. Why do people go see the Grand Canyon? I mean, all they, all they do is they just go to, just to look at something. <laughs> Drive four hours through Arizona, you know, it's like, why? It's awesome. It's, it's huge because you're wired to find pleasure in seeing greatness. You're wired for that. Okay. What is it about Half Dome? I'll never forget with our family, we floated down the Merced River, but there was a time where we were, we were just standing before some of these sheer granite cliffs that just went up almost forever. And I just had this sense of being so small in front of this thing that was so big and it felt so good. The pleasure of seeing something that big is awesome. The true greatness you were wired to see is not A-Rod. There's evidences of him in the Grand Canyon, but it's not the Grand Canyon. It's God himself. You are wired to find your highest pleasure in beholding an infinitely great God. Now, that's a hard thing to say to people in our culture because we're, we're, not, we're not in touch with that very much. It's like, it sounds so spacey. How do, you, I mean, how do you sink your teeth into that? Well, when Jesus saves you, he changes your heart and he gives you a taste by the Holy Spirit of God's greatness, the greatness of Jesus and so you, you press in and you study the scriptures like we talked about last week and you'll, you'll grow to behold more and more and more of God and worship him more and more and more and see more and more and more of his greatness. But that's what God's holiness is all about. Number eight, God is righteous. God's righteousness means that he always does what's right. Okay? <laughs> Didn't take me a long time to figure that out. Okay. And here's the important part. What is right is that he does everything to uphold and display his infinite worth. See, there's no standard of right and wrong above God. God is the ultimate. Who God is, is the standard of right and wrong. What displays and upholds his perfections is right. Sin profanes his perfections, and it's damnable. That's what makes sin so wrong. It's not some arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. It's that God is the standard of right. We'll talk about sin more next week. So there's no standard of right and wrong above God. His infinite worth 
is the standard of right and wrong. Everything God does is right because it's done for the sake of his name, for his glory, for his honor. Psalm 143.11 For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Now those underlined phrases are synonymous. This is how Hebrew poetry works. They don't have... They don't rhyme by same sounds, like, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's how we do rhymes. It's not how they do rhymes. Their, their poetry doesn't have same sounds, it's same ideas in different words. So here's poetry. For your name's sake, asking God to save my life for your name's sake, is another way of saying, bring my soul out of trouble in your righteousness. That is, for God to do something in righteousness means to do it for his name's sake, to display his glory to display his honor. Okay? Why does God help us out? Because it, it displays the glory of his name. It's a picture of his greatness, which then you can see, because you are wired to adore and find pleasure in beholding greatness, and other brothers and sisters can see it and adore God, find pleasure in his greatness. This is profoundly, I'm, I'm reading I'm after number eight in that verse, this is profoundly loving of God, and it's good news for us, because... Our infinitely highest joy is beholding his glory and perfection. So picture like this. God's highest passion and what's righteous for God is to display his glory. And my highest joy is to see the greatest display of God's glory. So God's highest passion satisfies my greatest joy. That's awesome. And this is why God created. Number nine. Some people think God created because he, he needed friends or needed something to do. No, God did not create because he needed anything. He created as an overflow of his infinite joy in being God. It's an, it's an overflow of his goodness. He created so we could have the joy of beholding his glory. He created an amazing universe, world, and people so we could see his glories have him as the joyful center of our lives, knowing him, trusting him, depending on him, being satisfied in him, and worshiping him. And so beginning of number 10 there, God created a universe and a world and Adam and Eve and said it was very good. Very good. So he looked at all that he created, you know, planets, light, moon, stars, plants, Adam, Eve, says it's very good. Now my main goal here this morning is to, is to have you leave here, I'm praying, with a a deeper understanding of the, the joys and the call to have God in Christ at the center of your life. So I wanted to kind of paint you a picture of who God is. But at this point, we've got to raise a question. And I want to raise this question because I want us to be a church which, which digs deeper into some of the things that the scriptures talk about clearly but that cannot be easy to understand. Okay, Here's the question. I've got it down there in your notes. This raises a question. If God created a universe, world, Adam and Eve, and said it was very good, why is there evil? Did evil surprise God? Did God lose control of creation? Is evil free to do what it wants, or is God in control? Can Satan or evil people do to us whatever they want? Now, we, I want us to dig deeper into that question. And the reason is, well, there's a number of reasons. One of them is, 
If you don't understand this question, you will not be able to be strong and fearless and at peace about the possibility of trials in your life. I believe that Jesus taught that following Jesus, while it does reduce some trials, right? Following Jesus reduces some trials. Following Jesus also increases other trials. Why did Jesus say, uh, follow me means taking up your cross? Okay? He didn't say, um, take up your couch. That, that would have been nice to hear. It's like, okay, we're you know, your recliner, your lazy boy. He said, take up your cross. Why would he say that following him means taking up your cross? It's because of what Paul said when he was going back through churches he planted. And the message that Luke tells us he repeated in every church was, through many tribulations, through much suffering, it is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Followers of Jesus suffer. I really want to make that clear because there is the idea that the closer you get to Jesus, the less you'll suffer. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Look at Paul. Look at Jesus. Okay, we're following Jesus. He says, follow me. Get your cross too. Let's go. Picture should be clear. I want Mercy Hill Church, I want us to have strong backbone when it comes to trials that come our way. I want you to have your theology of trials in place before the trials come so that she'll be clear and strong and steady. So that's why I want to dig a little bit deeper into this. And my goal in in sharing with you, I'm going to share with you some things that I think are clear in the Bible, but that some Christian teachers teach differently. Some of you have come to different conclusions on this topic than I do. And that's okay. I love you. My main goal here isn't to have you agree with me. My main goal is to have you study the scriptures for yourself and come to your conclusions. That's the most. I'd rather have you disagreeing with me based on the Bible than just agreeing with me because I'm the pastor. But I really want you to agree with me because it's based on the Bible. Okay, that's where I'm really going here. All right, so let's dig in. I'm about halfway down through number 10. I believe God's word is clear that God is in sovereign control of evil, that he planned and purposed to allow evil because through it, his plan and his purpose through it is to bring about the infinite good of displaying his perfections, which is our highest joy and the perfections he displays, his mercy in the cross and eternal salvation and his wrath and eternal judgments. Okay, let me give you a scripture. Here's one. There's, there's lots more I've got on the next page. We won't, we'll just look at this one. You can look up the rest of them on your own. Story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? He uh, was one of 12 brothers. 11 brothers were jealous of him. And so what did they do? They threw him in a pit. And then they sold him to some slave traders who came by. And the slave traders took him to Egypt, sold him into slavery. And he served in Potiphar's house as a slave for a while. Then he was unjustly accused of, of wrongdoing and was thrown into a dungeon for years. But God used that, amazingly, to move him to be number two man in all of Egypt so that when the famine came to the eastern area of the Mediterranean, God could provide food for Joseph's family and for Israel. Okay, that's the whole story. And look in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, at how Joseph explains to his brothers their actions. He says, as for you, brothers, you meant 
evil against me. But God meant it, brother's evil, for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Okay, letter A. It's clear that the brothers meant evil. I want us just to ponder the implications of that. Their action of selling Joseph into slavery was their willful, voluntary choice. They chose to do it. This shows that they, we, were not robots in God's world, God's universe. We're not robots. We make real choices which have real effects. And because their action was intended to harm Joseph, it was evil. Their intent was to hurt Joseph. They thought, let's hurt him. Made it evil. Made God angry, grief, sad, and, and God judged them for it. Okay, so that's, that's that first part. You meant evil against me. But now notice the next, I'm sorry, top of the next page. Okay, now some people think, this is where I, I would disagree with some, so you just weigh this. I want you to study the scriptures. Okay, nobody has to agree with me to be a member of the church. This is one of those areas where we can agree to disagree. But just study the scriptures. Some people think that if the brothers really chose their actions, then God had nothing to do with their actions. If they really voluntarily chose, then God must have just stood back and said, what are they going to do? Oh, look at what they do. But that's not what this verse says. Let her see. Notice that it was not just the brothers who meant their actions. God also meant their actions. Okay, turn back to the previous page. That's what it says. I want you to catch this. This is really important. And again, there's, there's dozens of verses that talk this way. As for you, brothers, you, brothers, meant evil against me, but God meant it. Exact same Hebrew word. Brothers meant evil. God meant it for good. Now, this, this can't mean that God sits back and waits to see what the brothers are going to do, and then when they do evil, then he steps in and turns it for good. That would be a nice thing. But God, I think, does more than that. He meant the brothers' actions. And what I think that that means is he purposed to allow them to do what they did. That is, God knew that he was going to have a famine come in the future upon the eastern Mediterranean area. God knew this was going to come. Brutal famine for seven years. And God wanted Joseph's family kept alive. That was the future nation of Israel. And so God planned and purposed a way to keep Joseph's family alive. God ordained to allow the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery so that he'd go to Potiphar's house, end up in dungeon, and become the number two man in Egypt so he could provide food for all of Joseph's family. God meant... The brothers' evil actions. He purposed to allow them to do what they did because God intended that to bring great good. That's what I think is going on here. I think if you ponder that verse, you'll see that. So keep reading under letter C there. God meant, that is, he planned to allow. So before they did it, he, he planned to allow their evil action without taking away from the fact that they willed and chose and were responsible for their evil action. Now, the question is, how can both be true? 
A lot of people think if we make voluntary choices for which we are really genuinely responsible, and we're not robots, if that's what we do, then God can't be in sovereign over the things that people do. I just don't see that in the Bible. I think that's an assumption that we bring to the Bible. The Bible never teaches that, that, can't, that both can't be true. And in this verse, I think you can see both must be true. The brothers meant evil. God meant the brothers' actions for good. To, mean, to, to meanie, meaners, to intenders, to, to forces at work here. So letter D. God's purpose for allowing their evil action was to bring about great good. That's why God is not evil when he plans and purposes to allow evil. See, I, I, just, I love this teaching. I love the fact that the Bible teaches this. This is why I can go to sleep at night well when I'm, when I'm trusting Jesus, is because this is how God has set the world up to run. It, it means a couple different things. I'm looking at number E here. It means that God really is in total control of everything, 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 everything that happens in the world. God's in control of. Now, does that raise a hundred questions? At least. That's what the Bible teaches. Just got it. Okay, my little pea-sized brain, I'm working on it. God really is in total control of the world, and it means we really make genuine choices. So we are authentic, significant humans who aren't robots. We voluntarily choose and our actions affect the world. We're meaningful. Our choices make a difference. Listen, your choices make massive difference. You don't know how important your choices are to trust Jesus, to love your wife, to raise your kids, to work at your job, to glorify Jesus, to worship. Your choices are massively important. So God's in control. We make genuine choices and nothing will happen to me that's outside his good and loving and wise will. Nothing. Nothing can happen to me that's outside his good and his wise will. I just love that. I love Genesis 50, 20. I, I meditate on that verse. When somebody does something that harms me, I say, they meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. No one can do anything to me that's going to take away God's ultimate good in my life. <laughs> what a glorious... I'm free! Do you feel that? No one can. You are... Gosh, I, what was this word we said last week? You are, in Christ, invincible in that way, by God's mercy. Okay. So see, this is the answer to the problem of evil. Let me illustrate it like this. If you're going to the dentist, and he's working on you, you've heard the joke, the one thing you don't want the dentist to say is, Oops. Right? Oops. Ha! Right? It's a bad thing. Is the reality of evil in the world because God is saying, oops? Is Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery something that God says, oops? If, if our God is walking around saying, oops, we're in trouble. Or at least it's a whole lot worse than we thought it was supposed to be. If tomorrow God may say, oops, about something in your life, that's not a happy thought. I'm not going to sleep quite as well tonight if I'm thinking that there's going to be some divine, oops, 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 oops. It's not going to go well. God never says, oops. He plans and purposes to allow even evil for great, glorious good, like feeding Joseph and his family, so this is number 15. This is the answer to the problem of evil. People, demons, and Satan do evil. There's a Satan, 
We hate Satan. Satan's going down. God hates Satan. But Satan can't do anything outside of God's permission. People, demons, and Satan do evil, but God is sovereign over evil. God has planned and purposed to allow evil in the world for the sake of bringing about the infinite good of displaying his glory for our joy. Joseph's slavery brings food to Israel. Pharaoh's hard heart brings about a powerful display of God's power. Remember all the plagues upon Egypt? Judas' betrayal of Jesus brings about the cross. The cross, which is the worst event in human history, which is predestined by God, Acts 2 says, brings about the salvation of a vast number of men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Okay, so here's the point. What I want you to focus on is that God is the appropriate center of your life. Because you could think it's God over here and then it's evil over here. It's called dualism. It's like, well, okay, so which one should I have be my center? If God and evil are equally kind of battling for control, it's like, well, yeah, I might throw in my lot with him, but like, what if this, this power over here wins? That's not how it is. Evil is under God's sovereign authority, which leaves God as the center. God in Christ is the center. And that's what I want to call you to see today so that you'll pursue God in Christ as the center. Now, some practices and passions. Read number one on your own. Skip down to number two. When God in Christ is at the center of your life, which means that the joy that permeates every other joy and the purpose that's at the heart of everything else that you're doing is knowing God and Jesus, worshiping Him, glorifying Him, obeying Him, you can be fearless when it comes to trials. Absolutely fearless when it comes to trials. Now, here's what I mean. Let, let's say that you go to the doctor and you get some tests and the doctor says, I've got, I've got some bad news. It, it may be cancer, but there's a 70% chance that it's not cancer. Okay? Now, how does a follower of Jesus fight for peace in that kind of a setting? I don't think it's by thinking 70%, 70%. It's not going to happen. 70%. I don't think God gives us 70% peace. I think God wants to give us 100% peace. I think God wants us to drill a little bit deeper so that we say, whether there's no cancer, which I'll praise the Lord for and I'll worship him for that, or whether in his wisdom he allows cancer to take place, which he would only do in order to bring me even closer joy in knowing Jesus. This would be a win and it would be hard, but I'll trust his wisdom. This also would be a win. By the way, we pray for cancer to go. We ask for healing to come. God loves to heal often, and often he chooses not to. But see, whether it's the healing or the no cancer, or whether he allows cancer, it's either Jesus or it's Jesus. My center is Jesus. It's a win or it's a win. I'm at peace. That's how we fight fear and worry about the possibility of trials. And I want you to see how Paul did that in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Paul was in prison. He could be killed or not. Okay, what are the odds? He didn't play the odds. I want you to see what he does here. He drills deeper to that point. Look at what he says. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, whether I live 
my joy is that Christ will be honored in, in my body. Whether I die, my joy is that Christ will be honored in my death. It's either Christ is honored this way, Christ is honored this way, Jesus is my center, it's a win or it's a win because of what he says in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. See how he does that? He doesn't think, they probably won't kill me, I'm a Roman citizen, it'll be okay, think positive, think positive, won't happen, won't happen. It's not where he goes. It may happen. They may kill me. See, we need to be realists. God does deliver us from many trials that come our way. You can see it time and time again. Many of you have been delivered. And there's times where God does not deliver us from trials. Right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In fact, okay, you've got to read this verse up above there. I thought I could skip it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. Here's something that's true every time we face a trial. If, if you know Jesus Christ, this is true. Paul says, this slight momentary affliction, and by the way, he's kind of speaking tongue-in-cheek there. Okay, Paul had been beaten numerous times, imprisoned numerous times, but he says it is slight and momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. So this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us. It's preparing for us. It's producing something. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How many of you are in a trial right now, large or small? Okay? Okay. All right. And all of you either, you you will be soon, if you didn't raise your hand, okay? If you're in Christ, and you've experienced this, every trial that you face that God doesn't take take, take away from you, that he doesn't deliver you from, the trials that he allows to stay, The sweetest times of nearness to Jesus are found at those times. No one has their sweetest, dearest, nearest, most profound times of fellowship with Jesus when everything is going great. It's times when things are hard and you're broken and sweetly drawn into his presence and Jesus helped me and he meets you and he comforts you and he blesses you. That's how it works. It's in my experience. I hear that from person after person after person. And every trial that you face, the trial you're facing right now, it's preparing something for you, an eternal weight of glory. You'll get a taste of it now, and you'll experience it all the more in the future. So every trial is a, is a glory production machine for you, bringing you an even greater experience of the glory of Jesus. So see, that's how we fight against trials. That's how we fight against fear and worry about trials, is we, we pray for release, we pray for healing, we pray for deliverance, and he will oftentimes bring it, but we, we don't rest in that. We drill deeper and say, for me to live is Christ. My life is all about Christ. He's at the center. To die is to gain Christ. That's a good thing. If he chooses that I'm going to be killed, my head chopped off by these Roman soldiers, that would be difficult, yes, but I'm going to gain Jesus. It's a win or it's a win, because to live for Paul is Christ. To die for Paul is to gain Christ because Jesus was at the center of his life. That's where we go. But too often we play it on the level of circumstances. 60% is probably going to be okay. We fight for that. That's as far as we go. We can drill deeper to that and have complete peace. Top of the next page. So when facing death, Paul was free from fear because the center of his life was not staying alive, but gaining deeper fellowship with Jesus Christ now and forever. Okay, now number three, I, I just want to address, this assumes that you love Jesus more than anything else. This assumes that. 
Paul did. He says to live is Christ. What would you say to live is? Is it Christ? And so Paul could say to die is gain. But the question is, I'm just looking at number three, what if you feel nothing towards Jesus? Okay? If you, if you feel nothing towards Jesus, now it's possible that you've been saved in the past where you sensed love for him and, and you've let it diminish so much so that you almost feel nothing. And if that's where you're at, you're in a very dangerous place. Okay? But let me address those of you who've never felt anything towards Jesus. The reason is, Sin. That, the problem is sin. It's not any problem with Jesus. He is the all-satisfying center of the universe that you were created to behold. But the problem is our hearts and wills have been corrupted by sin. So we feel nothing towards Jesus. We don't want God in our lives. We face God's just wrath. But see, there's good news for you. We, we talked about it with communion this morning. Jesus Christ died on the cross, taking the Father's wrath, which you deserved, so that you could be forgiven And when you put your trust in Jesus, you're forgiven by God. Your heart has been changed. God changes your heart. And you will love Jesus. He'll give you a taste of the glory of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the all-satisfying beholding of Jesus. That will be yours. And you'll be saved and forgiven and transformed. And so if you listen to all this and you say, I'm not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. Okay, we've all been there. We weren't born feeling any of this. But Jesus has saved us by his power. You can feel this. Jesus was meant to be the burning center, the joyful center of your life. How about the rest of us? I heard a pastor ask this question. I won't go through all these scriptures. You read them all on your own. But followers of Jesus are people who, just like Paul, to live as Christ, to die is gain. I gain more of Jesus. But think about this. I heard a pastor ask this question. What if... What if... You went to heaven, died and went to heaven, and you were completely restored to perfect health, right? Restored to your prime, no aches, pains, nothing wrong, perfect vision, whatever. Your family was all there, your husband, your wife, your kids are all there in heaven. All your friends are there, okay? You have limitless resources to pursue recreation, to, you know, golf, Surf, mountain bike, mountain climb, kayak, I mean, just the, the beauty of it. I mean, you're there in, there's just no flaws in the new heavens and the new earth. And all the things you don't like about your personality are changed, right? You're just like a perfectly loving person, happy person, you know? So what if all of that's true? You, you know, endless, like never reruns, right? Just, just all these new seasons of everything, okay? All right? But Jesus wasn't there. Would you want to be there? It's a very probing question. And it's hammered me. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, if living is health and wife and husband and kids and friends and recreation and endless no rerun tv shows and having you know being happy and comfortable if that's my life then i'd be content being in a heaven without jesus if all that was there when god saves you he blows all those other things away with a, a revelation of jesus So you would not be content if Jesus wasn't there.
The center of your life is God in Christ. Heaven will be populated by people whose passion is for Jesus. Look at this last verse, the last one at the bottom of the page. And I saw no temple in the city. This is a description of heaven. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The light of heaven shining through the lamp of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It's all God. It's all Jesus. Now those other things are not bad. They're gifts from God. But isn't that our problem? Is turning the gifts into God's. Letting the gifts obscure the giver. We all fight that. So my appeal to you from the heart is nurture love for the pure Jesus Christ, not his gifts. Thank him for the gifts. They're glorious. The gifts are to point you to the giver. The gifts are to point you to home. The gifts are signs saying that's where goodness is. It's Jesus. Nurture love for Jesus Christ through prayer, through the scriptures. The center of your life that you were created to have is Jesus He is the blazing center. You are meant to look, just like people go to the Grand Canyon, go to see A-Rod, you are meant to an infinitely greater degree to spend eternity beholding the glories of Jesus Christ. Now let's stand together. I want to pray for us. I want to urge you, if you have never Repent and put your trust in Jesus. Do it now. Repent of those other things you've tried to make at the center of your life. They're not going to function there. You know that. Look at Jesus. Fully God. Fully man. Died on the cross to pay for your sins. You can know him now. And the joys of knowing the living Jesus, not just knowing about him, but experiencing his real presence, surpass anything else that the world, that the universe has to offer. Today, right now, repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus. And if you have done that, if you have repented of your sins in some time past and trusted in Jesus, nurture Love for Jesus Christ. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Got to nurture that through the word, through prayer, through fellowship, through receiving teaching, through music, through friends who love Jesus and will spur you on. Nurture love for Jesus Christ. Heaven will be peopled by people who've had Jesus as their center. Work in our hearts now, Lord, I pray. We're so easily drawn away by little puny stuff, money, careers, friends, good things, but nothing compared to you. We want you to be the center, Jesus. So work in our hearts now. Let the Lord just minister to you and and talk to him. Repent, ask him for help, talk to him as Dave leads us.